You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, good afternoon, Northway family. Good to see you. Hope you're doing well. Y'all got some energy tonight? Are you, are you here? Are you with me? Everybody good? Let's go. Come on, man. Good to see you. As you can tell, we are back in the book of Romans this evening. So if you have a Bible with you, I would love for you to turn with me to Romans chapter 12. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Shay Sumlin, one of the pastors here, and just grateful to see you today. It's been a beautiful Sunday. We've had a wonderful time as the church family gathering together today. So glad you're here. Glad to dive into this book. If you are just joining us, if you're maybe unfamiliar with uh the, the book of Romans, the New Testament, Christianity, we're just glad you're here. And uh, we're continuing in a study of a piece of scripture in our New Testament that is amazingly beautiful. Uh, when you think about some of the bigger questions that almost every um, religion is asking, every human being is asking, questions like, why is there something out of nothing? Uh, what's gone wrong with the cosmos? Why, why is everything around us so broken? Uh, is there any hope? Is there any meaning in this? Is there, is, there, is there a solution to what's broken out there? And what is the ultimate end of where we're going? One of the things I love about the letter of Romans in your New Testament is it speaks to all of those issues. It helps us understand that there is a God, that there is a God who has, has made everything that we see. He made it good. He made it wonderful. But yet because of sin, rebellion in our own hearts that have rejected God, sin has ensued and it's fractured everything. It's fractured our relationship with God. It's fractured our relationship with one another. And it's fractured even the, the earth around us. And, uh, and so that's much of the brokenness that we're in today. And the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans is speaking to how God has provided a solution to what is broken it is spoken to the sin that has brought about this collateral damage. It is, speaks to how God has sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to come and pay the demand that our sin uh, entailed, which is the, the ransom of death and the penalty of death. And Christ has paid that. And so we see the story for the first 11 chapters of Romans of how God is, is now um, through his love for us, has pursued us, has now saved us through Jesus Christ and his work on the cross through faith alone in Christ alone. Uh, by his grace alone, he has reconciled us to himself. He has adopted us now back into his family as sons and daughters, as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. He has sanctified us and he has sovereignly secured us now for all eternity because of the work that Jesus has done. Because of the work on the cross, he has conquered the, the penalty of sin, which was death. He's now conquering the power of sin um, that reigns over us in our flesh. And one day, the ultimate hope is Christ will return and he will eradicate the very presence of sin once and for all. And all this is built in to the work that God has done that we have unpacked over 11 chapters here of how God is making this one new humanity out of both Jew and Gentile, bringing us together in all of our differences, but making us one through the blood of Christ. This is the beautiful news that we call the gospel, which means good news. It's the good news that God has given in Jesus Christ. And these last 11 chapters are incredibly thick theologically. We have mined through some very, very challenging passages to try to understand as we hold up the beauty of this good news of Jesus like a diamond where every facet is showing us a different side of the glorious redemptive purposes of who God is and what God is doing. And we've been seeing that. It's no wonder why the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, um, that he is not ashamed of the gospel because that gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, because in it, in the gospel, in the work of Christ on that cross, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And this is where we've been now for over a year um, through 11 chapters. But the good news also is that the gospel doesn't just end there. The gospel is not one that just saves us and sanctifies us, but it actually transforms us so that we are now sent 
as the people of God who have been now made new in Christ to go into the brokenness of our world and herald that good news so that others can receive it as well. And this is where chapters 12 through 16 comes into play. Chapters 12 through 16 is gonna move us from the indicatives of chapter one through 11 to now the imperatives of chapter 12 through 16, from the purpose of the gospel to now the practice of the gospel, from how it is the gospel saves and sanctifies to how it sends us. And this is the beauty of almost all of Paul's letters, especially Ephesians, Colossians, and Romans, is they're broken up into these two halves where the first half of the letter is the theological inworking of who God is and how he saves us of the gospel. And yet the second half of the letter is the, the practical outworking of that gospel. Not just what we believe to be true, but, but how it actually transforms our behavior as well. So for all of you who've been waiting for just the practical stuff, man, it's been a year of deep theology and you're ready for that practical. You want the cookies to be put on the lower shelf for you right now. They're coming, baby. Chapter 12 through 16. What Paul's gonna do is show us how this transformation of what Christ has done and our belief upon it actually transforms us and how we relate to various aspects of life in the world around us. How the gospel helps us to relate now to God, how the gospel helps us relate to one another as the church with all of our various distinctions and that make us different, what it is that unifies us and holds us tight, even to speak into some of those gray areas like how do you navigate some of these gray areas of life that the Bible doesn't directly speak into where you might have one preference or conviction on one side of it and I might have a preference or conviction on the other? How do we work together in this? How do we navigate this through love together? And he's gonna speak to that as well. He's also gonna move outward from the church. How is it that we relate to the world around us, our very neighbors around us who are far from the Lord? How do we relate to... to um, uh, evil in our culture? How do we relate to civil uh, and authoritative institutions around us, such as the government? How does, how does the Christian faith play out there? Ultimately, how does the gospel help us relate to God's redemptive purposes among the nations? To see this gospel heralded and, and the witness of Christ to go forth among the nations and God seeking to continue to build his church and bring about this new humanity. Every area of life we're gonna speak into for the most part categorically. And that's the beauty of this letter. It's gospel in chapters one through 11 and gospel out chapters 12 through 16. And all of it's framed really around the great commandment. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment in the whole, whole of scripture? He quotes Deuteronomy six and says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, this vertical relationship. And then he said to love your neighbor as yourself how that extends horizontally. And these two sides, the belief and the behavior, the indicatives, the imperatives, they are not separate. They go hand in hand together. In fact, Tom Schreiner uh, once said, carrying out the imperatives of chapters 12 through 16 would be an impossibility without the indicatives in chapters one through 11. You cannot have the practice of the church as it's intended to be in chapters 12 through 16 without first embracing those indicatives, those, the, the beliefs that hold us together in chapters one through 11. One informs the other. But um, we're gonna see now, starting in chapter 12, verse one, this gospel now working itself out out of what we've come to embrace in chapters one through 11. Notice he says, therefore, in verse one. And whenever you see therefore in scripture, you always wanna ask, what is it therefore? Um, and so, you know, you're catching along. So this is, this is what we're gonna ask. Why is it there? In light of chapters one through 11, here's what's coming. And what we're gonna begin with today is the idea of our worship of God, how the gospel transforms us into our worship of God. Remember chapter one began with the creation chose to reject their creator and would not worship him as God. And now all of a sudden, after understanding the gospel, we get to chapter 12. The very first thing he's gonna come out with now is now that you understand who God is, you've been embraced by this salvation, you've put your faith in Jesus Christ. What does worship of God now look like? And really there's 
two points. We're gonna cover two verses today. And therefore, you're gonna get two points. So if you're an outliner, you got two points coming at you. Number one, what is biblical worship? What does it look like? That's what we're gonna speak to first. And then secondly, what is the one thing out there that is seeking to rob us of what biblical worship is all about? What is the one thing that will actually steal our worship from God if we allow it to? Those are the two areas we're gonna look at today. 12, chapter 12, verse one. And by the way, I'm gonna do something different today that I haven't done in the earlier part of the series. I'm actually gonna read just this week only out of the New American Standard Version. So if things sound a little different today, it's where I'm coming from. ESV is great, it's where we've been. Uh, for those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, every Bible you have, depending on what it is, is a different translation. And uh, some of them get closer to the original wording of the Greek, but are sometimes hard to understand. The ESV does a great job of taking a, a faithful translation of the original language and yet making it readable. The NSAB is a little bit harder to read, but it's actually word for word of how, basically how it's translated in the Greek. And the reason I say all that nerdy stuff right up front is the two verses we're gonna look at, every word matters in these two verses. Every word is pregnant with meaning that's going to help us understand what our worship of God is intended to be holistically. And so follow along with me. Verse one, therefore, in light of everything that we've covered, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God which is your spiritual service of worship. And this is huge. Notice right out of the gate, y'all, Paul assigns one word to summarize all 11 chapters we've covered so far. If you could summarize all that God has done to save us through Jesus Christ, and you could only use one word to do it, what word would you choose? I know for a lot of us, we, we do like the, the Apostle John did in his gospel. We would use the word love. That's one of the primary themes of John's gospel is love. For God so loved the world, John 3, 16, that he gave his only son. Love was what you would summarize God's work through Jesus. Uh, the author of Hebrews uses the word sacrifice over and over. There's no greater sacrifice that has been given on our behalf than Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. So therefore, live in light of that sacrifice. Even Paul uses different words in different letters. In the, the letter of Ephesians, he uses grace as his primary word. Uh, it is the grace of God that has saved us. And grace, by definition, is when you are given something that you do not deserve. Um, it has not been earned or merited. It has simply been given to you. Something that you did not deserve is grace. And that's one way of summarizing the gospel Paul, in the letter of Romans, is going to use the word mercy to describe everything that we've covered in chapters 1 through 11. And that's interesting when you, when you dig into Paul's perspective. Why would he choose that word? Mercy is the other side of the grace coin. Instead of giving you something that you don't deserve, that's grace, namely salvation, mercy is when something is withheld from you that you do deserve. And in this context, that's condemnation. The, the condemnation we should have received because of our sin and rebellion, God in his mercy withheld it from you and placed it on Jesus. Paul never gets over this. This is how he sees everything that he's covered thus far in chapters one through 11. The mercy of God. Paul never questioned his deservedness of condemnation. He knew his sinfulness. Now, I've said it before early in Romans, the question most humans like to ask uh, in the circles that we run in is how can a loving God condemn a good person? Hear that all the time. The scriptures never ask that question. That's something you and I wanna ask, but the scriptures never ask it. They take the inverse of it. The scriptures ask, how can a holy and just God allow a sinful human being into his presence? Only through the mercy of God that takes the penalty that we have deserved and places it on Jesus who died on our behalf, who died in our place and took the justice of God, the wrath of God upon himself and off of us 
so that we, through faith in Christ, could be forgiven. Paul never gets over this. In fact, when you read Paul's letters, his sobriety of understanding concerning the nature of his sin gets clearer and clearer as he progresses in his older age. When Paul first writes the letter of 1 Corinthians, he states that he's the least of all the apostles. Like however you think of James and John and Peter and all the boys, I'm the least of these guys. Believe me, if you knew about me, what I know about me and my past, you would never even put me in the camp with these guys. I'm the least of all the apostles. Later on in his life, when he writes the letter of Ephesians, he says, I'm not just the least of all the apostles. I'm the least of all, this, of all the saints, of all the Christians that have ever been out there. Whatever your story is, whatever your broken past, Paul goes, you don't know me. You don't know what I deserved. And then when he gets towards the last letters of his life, 1 Timothy, he says, I am the chief of all sinners. It's like the older this dude gets, the more he sees his sin for what it was. And yet he never gets over the fact that God has forgiven him. That God did not hold his trespasses against him, but placed them on Jesus Christ and forgave him. The mercy of God. God has been so merciful to him. And I want you to hear this before we go any further here into Romans 12. This is the good news of chapters 1 through 11. And this is the good news for anybody in this room who is walking in continual shame and guilt because of your sin and your mistakes and your brokenness. God's mercy is available to you. God has not held your trespasses against you, but he has provided Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God who has taken that for you so that you can be forgiven. In Christ, you are made new. That's why Paul said in Romans chapter eight, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's paid it for you. You don't have to walk in that anymore. If you put your trust in the blood-bought salvation of Jesus, you are cleansed, you are forgiven for what you've done, what you will do. It's been met fully at Jesus Christ. And so you can rest in that. The punishment for your sin and guilt has been paid. You are free. Receive that, brothers and sisters. As the apostle Paul has, we receive that too. And he says, therefore, in view of this mercy that we've been given, I want you to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. This is, again, pregnant with meaning. The word present, in light of what God has done, all this mercy, the natural response should be to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That word present means to place something in front of. And it's used, Paul's using Old Testament imagery of what a priest would do in the temple services. When you would go to worship God in the temple, you never came empty-handed. You always brought something that would be sacrificed on your behalf because the penalty of sin is death. And so you would bring a lamb, you would bring a goat, you'd bring a ram. Sometimes once a year it'd be a bull and it would be taken before the priest and the priest would take the life of that animal. You didn't just take the ear of the animal, you just get its hearing. You didn't just take the leg of that animal, you just get its walking. You took its blood because in its blood was its life. And the penalty for sin was death. And that animal would be sacrificed and it would then be presented. The priest would place it in front of God on an altar. And that altar would consume that sacrifice and it would its scent would go up as a pleasing aroma, satisfying the justice of God that has been met at the, at, at, in the sacrifice of this animal. And Paul is borrowing from that language to go, in view of, uh, of the mercy that God has given you, I want you to present now as well. But notice the big differences, two main differences from those Old Testament sacrifices. One, instead of an animal now, it's you that is the sacrifice. It's you, and he specifically, it's your body. And that's the representation in scripture here of the entire being of who you are. Your entire personhood, your soul, your mind, your emotions, your will, your, your literal body is given fully and unreservedly to God as a sacrifice in light of his mercy. We're not given of an animal here, we're giving of ourselves, our being 
But most importantly, lest we all uh, murder ourselves right now, the second part is he says it's a living sacrifice. It's not just any sacrifice, it's a living sacrifice. See, the Old Testament sacrifices were dead sacrifices. You took that goat, that bull, that ram, that lamb, and you laid it down and it gave its life so that you could live and enjoy the unhindered access to God and worship. Well, you don't need that anymore because the Lamb of God has already come. Jesus Christ, the once and for all sacrifice who's been laid down for you and I for our sins. That payment has been paid. We don't need a dead sacrifice anymore. What God now expects as an offering is a living sacrifice. One in which we offer our whole lives up to God in response for the merciful sacrifice that he provided for us. The offering of the way that we live fully and unreservedly his in totality, living for his glory now, his will, his purpose, his mission, not ours. And this is what makes Christian worship so distinct from all other religions. The offerings that we give to our God aren't to merit the favor of that God on our lives. He has already given his meritous favor through Jesus Christ as a gift. You don't have to earn it. It has been given to us as a gift in Jesus Christ. Our response now is in response to that gift, not for that gift. And that's a huge difference. It's a, it's a get to now, not a have to, in giving up our worship to him. He died for us, we live for him. And this is Paul's theme all throughout scripture. 2 Corinthians 5.15, he di- and, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. He died for me, I live for him. My life is an offering for him. And he says this offering of our lives is holy. Now, when you and I tend to think about holiness, we oftentimes equate that with purity, and that's certainly part of it, but the the root word for holy literally means to be set apart, to be totally distinct, to be consecrated, to be fully devoted to something. That's what the word holy means. Um, You think about in medieval ages when a king would do a knighting ceremony. That knight would kneel before the king. And as he faced the king, that king would take his sword. If you've ever seen a knighting ceremony, they tap one shoulder, go over the head and tap another shoulder. That is symbolic of a beheading. You are severing your head to say that I no longer serve myself as head, I serve a new head. My allegiance is to the king now, not to anything lesser. What is his will is my will. What he desires is what I desire. And in the same way, this, this is what our, our worship to God looks like now in response to his mercy is not just that God gets part of us, but that he gets all of us and worship unto him. I told our teaching team this week when we were processing through this that I wasn't gonna share this story because it's too cheesy, but I'm just gonna share it anyways. Um, some of y'all have heard that old story of the chicken and the pig that are walking down the farm and look over at the barn and there's a sign on the barn that says, feed the poor. And the chicken goes, it's a great idea. We should totally feed the poor. That's a great thing. And so turns to the pig and says, I got an idea. What if we like, cook up this sweet ham and egg breakfast and we can go feed the poor with that? Wouldn't that be great? And the pig looks at the chicken and goes, did you hear what you just said? If we feed up a ham and egg breakfast, here's the problem with that. For you, that's only a partial contribution. For me, that is total commitment to this thing. I'm gonna have to give my whole self in order to feed a ham and egg breakfast. And in many ways, that's the picture we're talking about here. It's not a partial contribution in light of the mercy that God has given us. He brought us from death to life. A partial contribution is not what he's after. It's total commitment. Total consecration. In the Old Testament sacrificial system, you never brought your leftovers to the altar. You never brought a blemished animal. You never brought the last 10% of what you wanted to give. 
you always gave of the first fruits. You always gave the best of what you had. And, and, and notice he says at the end of verse one, for this kind of offering that we are to make with all of our lives that is holy, that is what is acceptable to God as our spiritual service of worship. Like this is what, what total surrender and worship looks like. But here's what's interesting. In the Greek, the word worship isn't actually there. There's only two words there, not three. Spiritual service of worship, there's only two words there. But the word that is used for service gives us the interpretation of that we're talking about a type of service that is worship. And here's what's interesting. In the New Testament, the most common word for service is the word that we get deacon from, diakonos. It's used all over the New Testament for serving. Uh, even in the Gospels, Jesus Christ did not come to be deaconed. He came to deacon and give his life as a ransom for many. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the common word that's used for service. That is not the word that is used here. It is the word latreia, which is a word that is almost exclusively reserved for the priests who give their act of service at the temple and offering sacrifices as a worship to God. And so, again, Paul is likening our offering of our lives to God as the work of a priest who's making an offering as part of worship. That's what this is paralleled to. And he says, when you do this, this is your spiritual service of worship. The word spiritual that's used there is the word logikos, which we get the term logical. Other translations will say reasonable. This is your logical service of worship. This is your reasonable act of worship, of giving your whole self to God, not just part of yourself. And that's important um, because what Paul is saying here is that when you and I give our lives in complete surrender and total consecration for the rest of the air that we're gonna breathe as long as we're on this earth, it's gonna be in devotion to his kingdom and to him as our king. That is a logical response to the mercy that he has provided us in bringing us from death to life, from condemnation to salvation. That's a logical response. You know what is not a logical response in worship? Giving God dead animals is not logical. It never was. It was never supposed to be in the Old Testament sacrificial system. Do you think that what God is ultimately after in our worship is a dadgum zoo? Is that what God's after? Just racking up a bunch of rams and bulls and dead carcasses that are burned up to him? Is, is that what he takes? He just wanna put some stuffed deer heads in his study as trophies of our worship? Is that the ultimate end? No, that was never the logical response. They were shadows. They were shadows that were teaching God's people's hearts about the substance that would one day come. The full substance that was met in the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who laid down his life for us once and for all to bridge the gap between us and God, to bring us in reconciliation to God once again. And what Christ's sacrifice has produced, it's not dead animals, but it's sacrificial hearts. It's surrendered lives. That's what God is after. King David actually understood this better than anybody in his day. And he was in a day when that sacrificial system was set up and on the regular. And yet when he sinned, when he had an affair with Bathsheba and he had her husband killed, according to the law, he should have been killed himself. But instead, he was shown mercy by God. He was forgiven. And David writes in several places, Psalm 40 is one of them, where he says, in sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering, man, that's not what you've required. So I said, behold, I have come. You see, what God is after is not your offering. He's after you. And so I have come. And in the scroll of your book, it is written of me, I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is written in my heart. The response that God is after is not sacrifices of dead animals and burnt offerings. It's after a 
heart that is rendered unto him, ready to do his will, full allegiance to him. Right after David was busted for his sin with Bathsheba and he broke over it, he wrote Psalm 51 in which he said similar words, for you will not delight in sacrifice or else I would give it to you. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken a broken and contrite heart, a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. That, O oh God, you will not despise. Even Hosea echoed these same sentiments about God when he said concerning God, for I desire steadfast love and sacrifice, or not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Y'all, this is what God is after. He's after our hearts. He's after our lives, not just partial contributions, but total commitment, total surrender of our hearts and lives. That is the only kind of offering that makes any logical sense in light of who he is and what he's done for us. But it also shows us that worship just isn't singing. Worship is more than just singing with our mouths. It's the surrender of our lives. Worship is more than just a place that we go to on Sundays, but rather a position of the heart that is rendered towards Christ every day of our lives, in every sphere of our lives. It's more than just the heightened emotions that we feel when everything's going really well, but it's also reflective in our abiding commitment and obedience to Christ, even when the wheels fall off in our life. And this is total worship. And I think it's so important we see this. The worship is in every aspect of our life. Husbands, when you love your, your wife like Christ loved the church, you are making an offering, not just to her, but to Christ. Wives, when you respect and submit to your husbands as unto the Lord, that is an offering of worship unto Christ. That, that when we step into our, our businesses that we work at and we show up on time with with dignity and with an ethic that is meant to make a contribution to our society that allows human flourishing to exist, to, to make this world a better place and to bring glory to God as the motive for why we do it. That is an offering of worship in our own sexuality. When we choose to look away from porn and quit objectifying other men and women um, to gratify our own desires, but instead offer our sexuality up to God's design of either faithful celibacy in our singleness or covenantal intimacy between a husband and a wife in marriage. That is an offering of worship to God according to his will and design. Every aspect of our lives is totality in worship that we are to render to him. Do you see, do you see why Paul is saying right out of the gate here in Romans 12 as recipients of the greatest gift that has ever been given to humanity, the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. The only response suitable to that gift is to offer every part of us in complete surrender. That's the highest form of worship that we can give our God. Now, having said that, there is only one thing that's going to prevent us from doing this more than any other, and it's in verse two. And I love D.L. Moody said this best, the problem with living sacrifices is that they tend to keep crawling off the altar. And that's the truth. When we are seeking to live lives in total surrender to God, there is a propensity within us to want to crawl off that altar of worship to him and trade our allegiance in our hearts to lesser things. And that happens in verse two, when we become conformed to the world. Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Conformity to the world is the quickest thing that will choke out our worship of God. Now, we've got to ask ourselves, first of all, what is the world? What does he mean by the world that we might conform to? And there's a couple of places in Scripture where Paul goes into more detail. One of those is in Ephesians 2, when Paul's talking about uh, the world as being that, that system of culture around us that is um, organized and headed up by the prince of the power of the air, 
which is Satan himself, who seeks to lead us in disobedience away from God to follow after him and the desires of our flesh and our sinful nature. One theologian put it as simply as this, though. If you want to talk about what the world is that we're not to conform to, he said it's three things. The indulging of your flesh, increasing your possessions, and impressing your neighbors. If you want to know what it is that marks the world around us that is apart from God more than anything else, indulging your flesh, increasing your possessions, and impressing your neighbors. And if you and I are not living for Christ, then most likely we have given our allegiance and our worship to one of those three things, if not all. And that is simply why many of us just will not lay our lives completely before God and say, everything that I am is yours. My money, my time, my sexuality, my relationships, my affections, my will, my mind, everything. It's yours, oh God. Do what you would will with it. You are my allegiance. You are my head because of the mercies that you have poured out towards me. That word conformed, by the way, is an architectural term. The idea of taking an object and shaping it according to a different standard or a different schematic than what God has designed. That's the idea of conforming to the world. Literally translated means to be pressed into a mold. And what Paul is saying here is that this world around us, headed up by the prince of the power of the air, Satan himself, is seeking to grab every one of us and press us into a mold that is different than the mold God is trying to shape us into. Now, we know what that mold is. Romans chapter 8 says the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to conform us to the image of Christ. And I'll just be honest and have real transparent confession right now because I'm going to guess that many of y'all are in the same position I am. Every day is a battle for me in that. Every single day. I feel that on certain days, if you were to take a mirror and put it in front of me and ask, do I reflect the image of Christ more than I reflect the image of the world around me? I don't know that I could answer that honestly and say, yeah, I reflect Christ more. I think there are so many things that are competing for my affections, competing for my will, and without even really thinking about it, it's just conforming me to many of the rhythms and the patterns and the structures and the mold of the world around us more than it is Christ. I think about the amount of hours spent not on God, uh, one recent study shows that the average American spends two and a half hours a day on social media. That same person spends an additional three and a half hours a day in television or film. And that same person spends an additional five and a half hours a day listening to music or podcasts. And sometimes I'm going, I'm doing all three at the same time. I'm sitting there binge watching a Netflix show, thumbing through my social media while Alexa's singing me a song over here, doing them all at the same time. And I, if I'm truthful with you, a lot of those things that I will spend time in, they aren't fanning the, the affections of my heart or the will of my nature with a bent towards God. They're actually pulling me away from him, if I'm honest. And I know, I know, I'm not saying any of those things can't be redeemed, that there's not just a common grace value in many of those things, there is. But you and I have to be honest and say, is there not an advertisement out there, a commercial between shows that we're watching that, has, that doesn't have an agenda for us? Shoot, there's not a Disney movie out there right now that doesn't have an agenda for us, beckoning us to conform to the image of the world. I said it before, one of the most convicting things is when I heard John Piper saying one time, quoting from Peter, saying, always be ready to give an account for the hope that is within you when you're asked. And then he said, when's the last time you've been asked about the hope that's within you? He said, most of us haven't because we don't look any different than the world around us. We're living for the same things they're living for and are being conformed to the pattern of the world more than we're conformed conform to the pattern of Christ. 
That we have been called not more just to live relevant lives, but to live distinct lives, better lives in Christ that promise us more joy, promise us his peace, even when the world's falling apart, so that others around us can see in there there's something different, there's something better that this person has given their lives to, even when they're battling the same issues that I am. This is a constant temptation I faced in my life. And I promise you, every time I put together a message like this, I have spent hours preaching this to myself long before I preach it here in this room. I am aware of the idols in my own heart that are seeking to steal me away from the true worship and love that is found in Jesus Christ. Paul issues an emphatic command here to those who of us who have received this mercy of God in our lives who have now pledged our allegiance to him, when he says, don't be conformed, but instead be transformed. That word transformed in the Greek is the word metamorpho. We get the word metamorphosis. Meta means to change. Morphe means structure. means to change your structure. Meaning that God has designed the very structure of our lives to be shaped into a different mold than what the world is offering us. And, and, and what we find is that, that God's intention through the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just to redecorate the old mold of the world that we were once walking in and just kind of touch it up. He wants to go chip and Joanna on that mug, man. He wants to employ some demo day, deconstruct that whole thing so that a, what can be constructed looks more like Jesus than anything else. And this is what God is after. Now the question is, how does this occur? How does this transformation occur? Um, He says it has to start in the mind by putting on a new mind. It has to start in our thinking. I know this goes against much of the mantras of our culture today that want to rail against just like heady, nerdy Christianity, and maybe rightly so, but we swing the other way to the heart. It's got to all be about the heart. Listen, the heart cannot worship whom the heart does not know. And God is in the business of rechanging our thinking so that our heart can be placed rightly upon what is true and good and perfect. It has to start with our thinking, a new way of understanding who God is and how he's designed us to flourish in this world. One of my profs in seminary, Howard Hendricks, used to say, Shay, if you want to change how somebody behaves, you're going to have to change what they believe. And in order to change what they believe, they're going to have to change how they think. Our minds are a battlefield for our souls that every day needs a replenishment, a renewing of the resources that God has provided in order to live this fully surrendered life and see and experience victory. How does that happen? How do we renew our minds? I don't have time for this, but I'll just give you three biblical concepts that help us with the renewing of our minds. The word of God, the spirit of God, and the people of God. This is how God works. First, through the word of God, he has given us his revelation to us. We don't have to guess at who God is. We don't have to guess at what God desires in this life or what he's provided to walk in it. He's told us. He's given us his revelation. Our job is to abide in it, to meditate upon it, to listen to his counsel, to allow his word to be the governing voice over our lives. Peter said that it is by his divine power, he's given us everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness. I've said it before. God's, the, God's word does not give you everything you need for changing your oil or fixing the engine in your car. It, it doesn't give us all that, but it does give us everything that we need to live a godly life according to God's design. And our job is to abide in it. Jesus said, just as the branch cannot bear fruit of the tree unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. If you abide in my word, my word is with you. It's in you. And so God's word is where we start by washing away the ideologies of the world so we can see what the will of God is. And that's in conjunction with the spirit of God. We don't approach the word of God in our flesh and go, how can I take all my baggage and make the scripture fit within it? No, I'm gonna take the scripture and apply it to my baggage. I'm actually gonna submit myself under the power of the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, I don't know how to live this life apart from you. I need you to show me. Open the eyes of my heart so that I can see your word for what it is. 
Lead me in the path that is in accordance to your will that I may obediently follow it. And God provides a living power through the Holy Spirit to do so. And then it also comes in accordance with God's people. A lot of our counsel comes through negative counsel, counsel that's in opposition to God. As Psalm 1 says, we're not to walk in the counsel of the wicked, we're to walk in the pathway of the wise. And God has given us his people, other believers who put their faith in Jesus Christ, men and women, brothers and sisters who come alongside me and come alongside us, who speak into our lives and help us see things that we need to see, who call out areas out of love and truth that need to be repented of and and consecrated unto God. And and that's the the beauty of what God provides so that as we meditate upon his truths, our, our minds are renewed. And the result of that happening is that as we live this life in full transformed surrender, we'll actually be able to discern what the will of God is. One of the worst questions you can ask is, what is the will of God for my life? Don't ask that question. Just ask first, what is the will of God? He's told us. There's a lot of areas we don't know. He hasn't given us revelation on. But there's more areas in which he has. Let's be obedient to those. The rest will take care of themselves. And, and so we wanna, we wanna have a renewed mind so that we can, he uses the word prove what the will of God is. That it's a word that means to test. We wanna be able to test the ideologies that are thrown at us, the, the ideas and the decision points that come into our life where we go, man, is this, is this thing of God or is this thing of the world? And we wanna be able to test it to see. That word prove is used of a goldsmith who takes gold and runs it through the fire so that all the impurities bleed away and nothing's left but pure gold. Like that's the process of being able to have our minds renewed so that we can test what the will of God is so we're not conformed to the world, but instead are conformed to Jesus in full and total surrender to him. And the result is that when, when those things come at you, you'll be able to say, is this thing good? Meaning, is it in accordance with God's nature? Is this thing acceptable? Meaning, does it line up with God's will and God's pleasure? And is this thing perfect? Does it land in accordance with his truth. In other words, at Northway, what we would say around here is, is this that I'm wrestling through right now, is it is in keeping with his truth, goodness, and beauty that is found in Jesus Christ. That's the beauty of having a renewed mind. When we live lives like this, that are in total surrender and allegiance to Jesus, motivated by the mercy provided in Christ, being transformed by his word and his spirit, with renewed minds that are conforming us to the image of Jesus, Only then are we experiencing the kind of surrender and worship that is worthy of the God who has saved us. Amen. Let me ask you this as we just land here. One of the questions I've been asking myself all week, and I think we would do as well to all ask it. Who has your heart? Who has your heart? And I know the flippant, trite answer that Christians we can give. So, oh, Jesus, does he really? Does he have just a partial contribution of that heart? Or does he have total commitment? Is there any area of your life that if you were to look at it right now, actually looks more like the world than it does the Savior who redeemed us? And where you see those areas, let's uproot those idols. Let's cut off those oxygen supply lines that have been feeding pollutants into us. And I don't know what that is for you, whether it's shows you watch, the music you listen to, the council you walk in, whatever it may be. Cut off those lines and replace them with fresh oxygen that comes from God's word and God's spirit, God's people, so that we can see as God wants us to see. Jesus said in Matthew 6, where your treasure is, that's where I'm gonna find your heart. Look at your calendar, look at your, your wallet, look at your passion and your energy. Where is your availability and time and resources and passion go? It's most likely what it is we are worshiping and cherishing the most. Let's do some introspection this week and let's seek to consecrate those areas to the Lord because he's worthy of it. I'll leave you with this. A.W. Tozier wrote a book called The Pursuit of God, one of my favorites. 
And it has a chapter in there called The Blessedness of Possessing Nothing. And in that chapter, he recounts the scene in Genesis 22 when Abraham is about to sacrifice his one and only son, Isaac. And Tozer says this of that text, Isaac represented everything sacred to his father's heart. The promises of God, the covenants, the hopes of the years, and the long messianic dream. As Abraham watched him grow from babyhood to young manhood, the heart of the old man was knit closer and closer with the life of his son, till at last the relationship bordered upon the perilous. And it was then that God stepped in to save both father and son from the consequences of an uncleansed love. And then he goes on to say, as, as, the, as morning came the next day and Abraham is about to make that painful act that I don't think any of us could ever fathom, offering your one and only son to God. He says this, God let the suffering old man go through with it up to the point where he knew there would be no retreat. And then he forbid him to lay a hand on the boy. To the wondering patriarch, he now says in effect, it's all right, Abraham. I never intended that you should actually slay the boy. I only wanted to remove him from the temple of your heart that I might reign unchallenged there. I wanted to correct the perversion that existed in your love. So now you may have the boy, sound and well. Take him, go back to your tent, because I know now that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me what God is after ultimately, the reign in our hearts that goes unchallenged by anything else in total surrender. Let's pray to that end. And I'd love for us to pray even what Tozer put as a prayer at the end of that chapter when he said, oh Lord, please root from my heart all things which I have cherished so long and which have become a very part of my living self, so that you may enter and dwell there without a rival. And oh God, we beg for that. Would you show us those areas as followers of yours, as recipients of your mercy, any of these areas where we have allowed our hearts to wander from you and have allowed our minds to be conformed to the patterns and thinking and image of this world? God, might you show that to us so that we, through the power of your spirit, might repent and offer the full self, not just a partial contribution, but a total commitment to you. For you, God, and you alone are worthy of all that we are. For your glory and our good, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.